0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: We've all got different situations. That's clear. Whether it's different income situations, whether it's different investment strategies, whether it's different family situations whether it's different living situations. Now, what can happen over time is things change, that's normal. And then sometimes we get the wants and the itches and the, I want to upgrade, I want to upsize. Now, some of this stuff can be a necessity if you've got a growing family, like you've got to move out of an apartment and get something bigger, or you're renting a one bedroom and then there's an opportunity to work from home. And then we want to upsize our rental. We're going to talk today about some upsizing, both your home that you own and also when you're renting. So that'll become apparent in the questions we answer today. We can't do today's episode without the help of Sphere Home Loans. Now, one thing you need to know about mortgage brokers, mortgage brokers are covered by the best interest duty, which means by law, they have to act in your best interest. This is really important to understand when you are dealing with a professional mortgage broker because it takes away that fear that, oh, they could be doing something for their own benefit. And the team at Sphere Home Loans, they are covered by the best interest duty. They help listeners all over Australia uh, refinance loans, get new mortgages uh, for investment properties or first homes, and they're here to help. They've got a dedicated team that help podcast listeners, you can just search Sphere Home Loans or click the link in the show notes and they'll be able to help wherever you are. My name's Glenn James, joined by John Pidgeon from the My Millennial Property Podcast. Let's have a chat. All right, Glenn. question
2: from Ashley. So we went to a financial advisor yesterday. He had lots of words to say, only some of them sensible. Mostly, I got marginally incompetent and mostly predatory vibes with a few red flags thrown in. I'm not a professional, but I feel like I have a good grasp on the basic concepts Part of asking for outside advice is to help my partner feel more confident. I've got a few ideas that I just wanted to run past someone who has experience and can point out the weak spots that I didn't identify. A pay-for-service situation rather than signing up for something expensive and unnecessary. What are your expectations when you think about choosing an advisor? Now, Glenn, you've been in financial advising territory at the coalface. What's mm. your assessment of this from
1: Ashley? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And what I really think is, there's a couple of points in this uh, paragraph that I want to unpack. The first one, when we talk about expectations, when you think about choosing an advisor, you need to make sure that the advisor that you're going to speak with, even if it's an introduction call, a 15 minute, make sure they look after people like you. I'm not sending someone like Ashley to Financial Edge Group who do retirement advice. Because one, They're just not suited. And then the other reason that you need to work with financial advisors that work with people like you is some businesses out there, They and it's getting harder and harder in this day and age, they'll be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. And if you've been referred to this uh, advisor, and I think in the comments in the Facebook group, you said uh, you were referred to by your accountant. I mean, are they just taking all accounting clients and... Is it a tick and flick thing? I don't know the situation, but it always goes back to what is this advice firm and who do they look after? And maybe next time you are looking for an advisor, like go on their website, get a bit of a feel. Look at some Google reviews. On the Google review thing though, like like anything, I honestly think, John, if anything's like over 4.1 or 4.2 stars on Google and there's heaps of reviews, it's fine. To pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like you, you look at hotels and different things yeah. like that and they're like, oh, they didn't smile at the reception desk and some people's expectations are ridiculous and they'll just leave a one star. But mm. I think, yeah, number one, you've got to look for a business that works with people like you. Number two, and I'll just rehash, the reason on the Sort Your Money Out website, uh, I don't just have a list of advisors. The team will actually look uh, at your situation and we will introduce you to someone who works with people like you. So it takes a whole heap of that away. Mm. Uh, And because I just don't want you to call every advisor on my list when I know that not all advisors will help all people. So there's that. But the second thing, John, if you've got a good relation with the accountant, go back to the account like, what the bloody hell was that? <laughs> and ask mm. the accountant questions like, yeah. I had a really bad experience. Uh, so there's that portion. Uh, but what I wanted to get to mainly, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I did a bonus episode with the CEO of the Financial Advice Association of Australia. And we talked about the legislation and the cost and all that. The questioner said, ideally, I would like to pay for a service where someone can just look at their plan And see if there's any holes in it or if they can do things better. The way the law is set up in Australia means that I don't know if you would find an advisor who can do that. If they do, they may be breaking the law. The reason why, if someone looks at your current situation and says, yes, that's good. You're on the right track. They've given you advice that the product you have got is a recommendation to hold. And a hold recommendation is a recommendation, a formal recommendation. So that's kind of just a bit of the lay of the land. Now, there are advisors out there that you can pay once off, get a statement of advice, full financial advice, and you don't have to sign up for a yearly thing. But you've got to go through the process because if you did listen to that episode with the CEO of the FAAA, and if you have been to an advisor for those listening, there's a lot of legislation and paperwork to get through and it can add up. So, I just wanted to talk about this question, namely to say, when you are looking for a financial advisor, ask for a referral from a friend or family member who has used that advisor. And secondly, ask them who is their main client? Who do they look after? Uh, And I think that will get you a lot of the way. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, there's you might go, well, I'm a 28-year-old and I want someone who can help me with my money goals. Sure, there could be an advisor who helps 28-year-olds with their money goals, who's a total predatory sleazebag. Like yeah. <laughs> there's there's people out there. But I think having those two kind of frameworks in place are a good recommendation for someone you trust and who has used the service, whether it's friend, family member or like the website sortyourmoneyout.com or at least doing some research and asking the question, Who do you work with?
2: And past history tells me the accountant financial advisor relationship is is sometimes a bit murky. Um, So, for for someone like Ashley, uh, is it a a good idea to maybe ask them before they're booking the session or as they book, uh, okay, who do you mainly work with? Um, Whether it's a paid or free session. You want to be on the same pages to know that you're working with someone, as you mentioned, that's going to be suitable, that uh, they're working with similar bodies or similar financial situations going forward.
1: Well, it's not even that. It's probably asking, hey, is this a service that you guys do? Even in an email or a quick 10-minute phone call. Before you go in and do the Zoom call, hour meeting or go in in person, hey, I've got a situation. Can I pay you for three hours to look over it and tell me yes or no? I think most of the time it would be no, I can't do that because it would be highly against the law because mm. all advice has to be documented legally. Um, but, you know, the good thing is the government are onto this uh, to try and bring the costs down and make financial advice more accessible. Uh, so it, it's it, it's a bit of a watch this space.
2: They need to play with the red tape while they're at it?
1: They're going to cut a lot of red tape away. Mm. Yeah, That's good. Uh, You should take a listen to that episode because I only recorded it very recently and it went up really fast. So I will. All right. Here's one for you, Johnson from M. Looking for some perspective. We've been looking at selling and moving for the past 12 months as we have outgrown our tiny home. Now, I don't know if it's a tiny home or a tiny home. (laughs) tiny home. (laughs) (laughs) Problem is we live in Perth and house prices have gone up significantly. I think you'll find that's a problem everywhere on this island. While available listings have continued to go down, houses are often under offer within days, way above asking price. Fortunately, we would make a decent return on our current home for the same reason. However, our mortgage would still go up considerably. Given how crazy the market is and the fact we would only be moving to upsize, which is a luxury, not a necessity, would you continue to wait not knowing what comes or bite the bullet and go for it? And Em's just asked for some um, insight from the Facebook group, but where to go when you want property insight? Ding, ding, ding. It's Jonathan Joe. Right. Good, good question, Em. Getting
2: some perspective on this in the Perth market. And it is red hot, by the way, over there in Perth. So I guess. Oh,
1: it is like. So wrong. Australia is hot, but are you saying Perth is actually hot, hot, hot?
2: yeah relatively like not, speaking, not just the barometer thermometer it's uh yeah it's it's days on market extremely like properties are running out the door um very quickly, so yeah, and it has been down for a long period of time, so the local perthites um are not maybe used to um such intensity, so it, there's a lot of um screaming and moaning and stressing over there at the minute, so I suppose there's two parts of this that I want to address, one is the market timing. And I'll get to that. And the second one is the statement that is a luxury, not a necessity. So, do we need to upgrade the family home? She mentioned it's it's a tiny home, so we're growing out of that now. It may
1: she's and we'll, saying. We'll, it, let's assume that it's not actually a a caravan without wheels type tiny home.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it is a house, but yep. they're they're bursting at the seams a little bit. So. At the same time, we're saying, okay, an upgrade would actually be a luxury. So there's an element that says we could actually stay here and it would still be okay. Um, That's one part of it. So we need to work out, well, what's the next five to ten years look like for us? How many kids have we got? Um, We we said we've outgrown it, but how long are they going to be around for and and will we downsize in ten years' time anyway? Can we see ourselves through that time or do we actually need to upgrade? And usually when we upgrade, we're going to either a bigger – uh, size of dwelling, or a bigger block, or a better location—all of that costs extra money, as uh, as she's mentioned. So, understanding what your mortgage level is that you're comfortable with so the mortgage at the moment is quite comfortable by the sounds of things um, but she's saying our mortgage would still go up considerably how much is considerably and does that put pressure on our lifestyle if it does is that worth it and um, what are the highest priorities in our life is it living in a bigger house or is it being able to go on holidays three times a year and buy the kids toys and whatever that might be so that, that's the first part of this. Um, understand what your highest values are. Is it um, being able to handle a m- bigger mortgage but have a bigger home or to be comfortable and have a better lifestyle but put up with that smaller home? The market timing, Glenn. Mm. Continuing to wait, knowing not knowing what comes or just bite the bullet. Now, let's think about things in our control. So what I've just spoken about, they're all things in our control. What do I want in life, what my mortgage repayments are. I can I can plan all of that. I with the decisions that I'm making. The market factors are mostly out of our control. Right. We don't know what's going to happen in the next two years, twelve months, five years. 20 years. But we can look historically and say, well, okay, the Perth market, it had a boom 10 years ago. It's uh, Most of the markets stayed reasonably flat in, in between in the last couple of years. It's uh, shot out of the gates and, and gone up significantly most assets. So what do we do if we hold out? Well, as you've mentioned, Em, your property that you've got goes up in value, but the property you're trying to chase also goes up in value. And some cases goes up more because invariably it's a better asset in a better location or a bigger size block or whatever that might be. So you might be chasing a tail a little bit there. My thoughts would be control what you can control. Um, if you are looking to buy and sell in the same market, which is an example of that here. Uh, we would want to do both reasonably quickly or or successive and not just go and sell now and then think, oh, yeah, the market's going to drop in 12 months. So in 12 months' time, I'll I'll get back in then only to turn around and see there's been a 10% increase and all of a sudden we're, again, chasing our tail and we're five years behind. So if I'm going to sell my home now, most cases I would buy in that same heated market. I I take a win on the one side and maybe I take a little bit of a haircut on the other side.
1: Mm. So I wrote a few things down. Uh, Some of them are pretty similar to yours, but there might be some other considerations just to think about. I would probably first go to a mortgage broker and just do a bit of an assessment and have a bit of a scenario. And one of the questions... I would be asking myself is does all this service and do we have the situation to keep the current property and keep it and put a tenant in there and then go and buy somewhere to live in? Like, does that scenario stand up? Like, I don't know. Might not. It might. Yeah.
2: That that's a fair point. The only thing I I in reading in this, our mortgage goes up considerably. So that property that they would be buying. They'd be using equity from the existing property, which would put a fair bit of mortgage stress, I would have thought. Yeah, but, well, and we, yeah. we don't want
1: to use equity to buy a principal place of residence off our mortgage of the investment property.
2: Yes. So um, they would have to have a large chunk of cash sitting aside
1: as a deposit. Mm. If they've got that, yeah, it's a numbers game. Or route, isn't it? Uh, because this isn't urgent, you know, are we paying extra on the mortgage or is it an offset account? Well, if it's an offset account, just keep building cash. If you are paying extra on your current mortgage, stop and pay the minimum until you really work out what you want to do. Mm. That could be a thing. The other thing I wrote similar, but I'll give it an actual percentage: thirty uh, percent of pre-tax income going to mortgage repayments is considered mortgage stress. And there's probably a lot of people that are paying over that at the moment, thinking that would be nice <laughs> because we're <laughs> we're paying <laughs> over thirty percent. Used to be, but that's the kind of textbook you're in mortgage stress if your pre-tax income is 30% going to housing, right? Probably way out of touch for a lot of people, but that's just the definition. So what I'd probably do is do the scenario where you get some servicing and numbers on the new property and like you said John, if it's 30 or 32% on the new property, well, yeah, it's probably doable. A bit less maybe, hopefully, um, because sometimes with money it can feel like things are tight. It can feel like things are out of control. But when you actually do a spreadsheet and do your budget, and not saying Emma hasn't done this, she sounds like she's switched on. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's like, no, no, it is fine. So there's that. The second thing around should we wait the time horizon to live in the next property? If there's no intention to sell within the next seven to 10 years, and I can service the new mortgage and that lines up, I'm then moving to the next point of like, yeah, find something you're happy with and just go buy it. Does raise the question
2: of bridging finance, which is a little bit riskier. Um, but it's it's just something that some people like to entertain mm. in a market like this where they can sell their own property, their existing property pretty quickly generally, mm. if it's half decent uh, and then have a little bit of a waiver period to be, mm. able, be able to go and find that
1: other property. Yeah, and like in the perfect storm, like this whole thing isn't urgent. I made a note that because it isn't urgent, you can take your time and find the right place. And maybe if you do find the right place, you can ask for a longer settlement. Yeah. If the planet's aligned and then, okay, we've done that and now we've got to sell our house and maybe be prepared for some bridging finance. But I wrote down use a buyer's advocate because getting properties that are not advertised on domain, on Google, on real estate, all the things you might save some real money and have a little bit more flexibility because they, the BAs might be talking with people that are, yeah, we kind of want to sell. We're in no rush. Yeah. And because you're not in a rush, things may happen, but it all goes back to the numbers. Make sure the new mortgage is well around that 30% or less of Mm. your household pre-tax income. Yes. Very good. Moving on. Do you want to read that one from Emily? Yes. And, uh,
2: it's a good lead-in, isn't it? Because, it is not it Because Emily's saying, looking for some perspective and thoughts, please don't slam me with frugality too much. Would you rent a house on your own that equates to about 40% of your weekly take-home pay because you really wanted to be in a specific location and have the space? I realise that financially there are cheaper options than what I'm considering and I know generally the advice is to keep the cost of rent under 30% of your take-home pay. But if it was a real value to you to live in a certain type of home and location, is it realistic to spend that much on rent? Would be keen to hear from others who have done it and whether they felt it was worth it or not.
1: What are your thoughts? It's, it is quite similar. Except we're renting. We're renting. But mm. there's one difference with this conversation. If you do do this 40% right, and you've made other sacrifices and I'm going to cancel this and do that. And I'm happy to take this risk and really live on the line because it impacts my life to live in this place. And I know it's a bit of a luxury and all that stuff. Like do what you want, but it's probably a no from me because what we've seen at the, in the rental squeeze at the moment, you could get a $100 a week increase in two years time or something like that. And it might really flush you it might really cause some big time issues. So you're not leaving any margin in your budget. Uh, and particularly if there is an aim to save for a home to buy for yourself, or you're spending more on rent, which is less money to be spent on um, saving for a, a deposit yourself. Now, I'm a big advocate of living alone. I do it myself. I don't want a housemate or anything like that because it's it's really cool. Uh, I'm a bit of an introvert. <laughs> uh, but... Which is weird when you're a podcast host. Well, I'm just talking to you, not talking yeah. to anyone else right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, look, I'm just saying I'm doing it with caution unless you've got a solid plan over the next six to 12 months mm. to move something in the equation and that something is income. So we yes. get more income, that percentage decreases. And it just goes to show like we don't want to run our life on the line in every area. We no. want margin if possible. Again, there's probably people listening going, oh, I wish my repayments was 40% of uh, my take home or whatever that is. And there is some confusion with 30% gross or net. Um, I just did a quick Google search before, like the definition of mortgage stress, they're saying 30% of pre-tax. Um, it really doesn't matter. Even if you did 30% of post-tax, 40% of post-tax, whatever that is, have a guide in your life. Yeah. Whether it's gross or net, anything over 30, it's starting to get pretty savage. 40% it's scary, 50%, 100% not sustainable. So we just want to have margin in our life.
2: So Emily's a smart cookie. Use words such as frugality, which I could hardly pronounce, etc. Mm. And And I think she knows what she wants and it's like, okay, if we want to go and get that space and that location, do that because that enhances her lifestyle. Um, That's the main reason for doing it, maybe. Mm. One thing to think about is longer term, do I want to save for something? And how much is that going to impact? It's a cause and effect, isn't it? So if I'm paying 10% more on on a roof over my head over the next five years, how much is that going to add up to in dollar figures? If on the other hand, I've got a goal to I don't know. Invest in shares, or or buy my own home one day. Mm. So it's if we're comfortable with that side of things, then I would say knock yourself out.
1: I would also add because we don't know the actual rent amounts or the income amounts. For example, I've been snooping around. Um, I haven't told you yet, but I'm. <laughs> I'm snooping? Actually, <laughs> some snooping. <laughs> I'm actually looking at moving out of here and maybe getting an apartment. Ooh. Just the two better down on the water. Um Why not? Pay, pay a little bit less in rent. Um You just set up a new studio. <laughs> yeah, I did, but you know, I'm bored and you know. But I guess what I'm saying is and you know, everyone's gonna roll their eyes, but some like I was looked at one, I didn't look at it. The agent called me, she's like, Oh, we've got another one down there. I'm like, okay, how much is that? And she said, Oh, it's eighteen hundred and fifty a week. And I'm like, on No planet, am I renting a three-bedroom, two-car thing like, and paying almost two grand a week? Not doing it. But all that to say, there are people in this country that are on really good incomes and paying really big amounts of rent. Now, there's ones that I've seen online that are $1,200 a week. Now, just have a look on realestate.com and domain and look at how long the averages are on the market. And if you are in a situation, Emily, where you do have a, a higher income and you are looking into that more premium uh, rent amount of up to $1,000 a week for a sweet-ass place and all that stuff, and if the place has been on for a while, yes, there's a rental crisis, but with these higher amounts, you might be able to say, okay, you've listed it for 1000 a week. Would you take $900? Mm. So, you know, it's probably a very niche situation that that's, would actually happen, but just in the looking that I've had around in the market that I'm looking at, um, there have been some units that are well over the 800 a week that are hanging around empty in different parts. So grain of salt and all that stuff, don't at me too much, everyone, but welcome to life. There are people that earn lots of money and there are people that spend over $1,000 a week on rent. Yeah. So it's the
3: new world we're in.
0: From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite.
1: Righto, yeah, we are back and the community segment of the week is brought to you by Sky Wealth. If you do not have your income insurance or your life insurance this is a friendly reminder. Contact Sky Wealth, sky.com.au forward slash MMM. Have a 15-minute conversation. Get what matters sorted. And that's your income insurance. And I would say back to those last two questions, I want you to, before you bloody upsize your house and upsize your rental thing, make sure your income protection is in place. Because if you are going to start running on these margins, you want to make sure if the money stops, the money doesn't stop. You know what I'm saying? Know what I'm saying? Skywealth.com.au. We asked people in the Facebook group, tips for setting boundaries at work. This sounds familiar that we've read one of these recently, but we'll read read some of them again.
2: Mm. Aaron, this is something I'm struggling with currently, but a new mantra came to me yesterday that I'm trying to live by now. Just because I have capability doesn't mean I have capacity. Can't Mm. wait to hear people's suggestions for this because I need them.
1: Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Darcy said, "Stop saying sorry. Don't trust anyone until they prove you can trust them." Three, keep personal stuff to yourself. Four, don't be peer pressured. Five, just because it's a priority on your list doesn't mean it's a priority on mine. Uh 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 huh. <laughs> Devraga, the group expert
2: from My Millennial Medical, I think boundaries are drawn. It's actually
1: My Millennial Money professional. Oh, is it? Sorry.
2: I think boundaries- Has been for
1: over a year, but whatever.
2: Sorry, Deb. (laughs) (laughs) I think boundaries are drawn based on position and how you behave at work. Makes it much easier. The more you mingle with work colleagues, the higher the risk
1: of lack of boundaries. Assess your risk, mitigate and develop your style. Hmm, fancy. Tanya says, say goodbye to a toxic workplace. Know and value your worth. Don't be afraid to move on. A toxic workplace will keep taking as long as you keep giving. So just on that, this is why it's so important. The younger you are listening to this, the easier it is to set up financial foundations. Make sure you've got your emergency fund in place because an emergency could be, I'm in a cesspool. It's impacting every corner of my life. I need to give them the finger and get a new job. Get out of there. And the reason I'm really strong about teaching these foundations and having an emergency fund as soon as possible when you start your career Because it's easy to implement these foundations when your life is just getting started and then you can maintain those foundations. Like a very old house, really hard to renovate the foundations and keep the house in order. It's a big nightmare, takes a long time, maybe more costs involved. But building a new house from scratch with a blank bit of dirt to start with, aka you're just starting your career and your financial life, build your foundations and having an emergency fund will really help you if you need to step away from a toxic workplace. Simple as that. Love it. bring everything back to property. Oh, absolutely, John. All right. Well, that was the community segment of the week. We're just going to move on to some housekeeping. Tuesday, the 12th of December, we do uh, webinars once a month from different people in our sphere. Um, don't excuse the pun, but Rachel Kroon from Sphere Home Loans is doing a webinar on refinancing. So they're going to cover repricing or refinance, what is best, using the equity in your home, renovation loans, how valuations differ and can affect borrowing and rates, preparing to borrow, what to do first and what to look for in a lender. So we'll put a link in the show notes to that digital workshop. Um, Any other housekeeping from your end, Johnson? Um, I don't think so. I don't, don't want to sell anything. Dog needs a groom at some stage.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, we did speak about the Perth market before.
1: Did mm, you know we've got a
2: be o- over there now?
1: Oh, you do? Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. So would that be like owner-occupied or investing? Working yeah. uh, on an owner-occupied as of yesterday. Well, there you go. Well, maybe, um, M, if you want to reach out to uh, Envisage Property, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's what it's called. (laughs) Awesome. Um, John's got Buyers Advocates over in Perth now. Okay, John, can you read Beck's question? Because it follows the episode we did a couple of weeks ago on creating an investment strategy.
2: Yes, so Beck has a question. uh, Well, and a statement, all in one. Podcast 646. For the followers and the punters, how to create an investment strategy. Thanks, Glenn. What a great episode. I sat down and really thought about my goals and wrote them down and the why. I made it to number 4B and I already have a small selection of ETFs diversified amongst Australian, US and all world equities. My question is to really diversify my portfolio, I wanted to add 10% of portfolio to a bonds ETF and 10% to an emerging markets ETF for some high growth, but wasn't sure where to start looking for the best ETF of each of these because the amount of information out there is overwhelming." Did you cover these in a podcast or can
1: you tell me a good place to start looking? Cheers, Beck. Okay, so Beck, thanks for listening to that. And if you haven't already, podcast 646 that Beck said a few weeks ago, John and I went through a seven point uh, investing strategy plan, how to make one. And we've had a lot of good feedback from that. So I'm looking at the moment. Um, as it stands at the moment, I'm just drawing this down. Her portfolio is 100% growth, right? and primarily 100% equities because we've got US and world and Australia. She's talking about adding 10% bonds and 10% emerging market, which means if we add 10% bonds, that's defensive, and 10% emerging markets, that is growth. And emerging markets could be India, could be China, could be Indonesia, could be some markets in Europe, Um what that would actually do is reduce the total portfolio from 100% growth to 90% growth because we're adding a 10% portion of defensive assets. Now, generally what happens is by having a portion of defensive assets in a portfolio, it will slowly smooth the returns out. Uh, The dips won't be as deep and the peaks won't be as high. The thing is, if you are building your own portfolio like this, you need to be onto it in terms of rebalancing and you need to have the guts to be able to say, my 40% allocation to international equities this quarter is now 50%. You need to have the guts to sell down that winner, quote unquote, 10% worth and redeploy that 10% over the other parts of the portfolio to equalize the portfolio because you want to keep. Your asset allocation of 90% growth, 10% defensive at that every quarter. And likewise, if there has been a quarter where uh, the defensive portion is 20%, for whatever reason, we need to sell down the defensive and buy that into growth. You may have some variation where you'll say, I've got an allowance of 5% either side um, of that. But that's just a, a thing if you are pulling this thread of wanting to manage your own portfolio, uh, you need to look at rebalancing. Uh, Show partner on our Thursday show, Global X, they've actually got an ETF landscape report. And I'm just looking. I've got it here, John. See this big book? Uh, Yes, it is a big book. It's an ETF landscape report. It's got every ETF available in Australia right now. Wow. So, if we say... She wants to have a look at. I should have prepared for this, but go with me, everyone. It's, you guys need to chill out. It's about the journey, you not know, the destination. Go for the journey with me. Uh, okay, let's look for an emerging markets ETF. Okay, page 45, equities, emerging markets. So if we go to page 45, on page 45, here's a list of ETFs. And it's not just Global X ETFs. Uh, where are we? We've got the fund, the Global X India Nifty 50. Now, some of these emerging funds, they will have a higher fee than a broad-based A two hundred or S&P 500. The Global X India Nifty 50, 0.69, BetaShares India Quality ETF, 0.8 MER, um annually distribution, BetaShares Martin Curry Emerging Markets Fund. The fund aims to generate after fees returns in excess of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index expressed in Australian dollars over a rolling five-year period. That's 1%. So you can start to see that some of these emerging markets, um, you know, they can... And I think the paying and buying the index of some of these more niche things, because it's a volume game, the fees are higher. And maybe because it's a bit more niche and sexy, they can have higher fees. Um, iShares, which is BlackRock... MSCI Emerging Markets ETF, IEM ticker 0.67. The fund aims to provide investors with the performance of an index that is designed to measure the equity market performance in global emerging markets. Um, and the distributions are mainly annually for these. Uh, they rebalance, so the Global X India Nifty 50, they rebalance that semi-annually twice a year, and they have an annual distribution. And the cool thing is it tells you how many underlying uh, holdings in the fund. So this Global X Nifty 50, there's 52 holdings at the moment. Um, the iShares MSCI Emerging Markets ETF, there's 1,273 holdings at the moment. So, And they've got a, a quarterly rebalancing. And then there's like a Vanek MSCI Multi-Factor Emerging Markets ETF, 0.69%. So the fees are they're going to be you know, close to half percent as a minimum. Vanguard uh, FTSE, which I think would be the FTSE Emerging Markets Shares ETF. The fund aims to provide exposure to companies listed on emerging markets, allowing investors to participate in long-term growth, potentially typically of these economies and the benchmark for the um, FTSE Emerging Markets All Cap China A Inclusion Index. And that's got 4,400 holdings. So all that to say, um, the Global X ETF landscape report is a cool thing. You can just download the um the PDF online. You can see where Beck gets confused, right? Well, that's it. And the thing is like emerging markets, do you want, oh, like I'm really interested in India. Oh, I'll get that. Or no, nah, I just want a bit of everything around the world that's emerging. Well, we might go an iShares or a Vanguard or something like that. So it really depends what you want. And we know with investing, you've got to keep diversification paramount. Um, So, good on you for for getting involved with your strategy. Yeah. John, there's a question here from Vic. Investment property question. If you were to choose to buy which state to invest property in, which state would you go for? It seems a lot of investors are exiting the market and moving their money elsewhere due to the Victorian government policies re-property investing here. I'm looking to turning our PPOR to investment property, but not sure if I should proceed as my yield is only three to 4% and maybe on the lower side when it comes to all costs considered. I think you did answer that in the Facebook group. Um, What do you want to say to Vic?
2: I'll read out what I said for those who aren't in the Facebook group. Um, So I said, Vic, In my opinion, location is the last thing we look at when designing our strategy. So it's not the least important. It's just saying in order, we need to get a whole heap of other things established first, which I'll expand on. Overall outcome, price point, yield and type of property amongst other things need to be established. Then we can navigate through the pros and cons of investing in each state when shortlisting locations. So totally agree. Victoria is on the nose for a lot of reasons um, and, and way before the whole land taxing got uh, implemented or brought out, stamp duty always been highest as far as I can remember in Victoria as opposed to New South or Queensland or other other states. So an example of that might be on a 600K property, it might be 8 to 10K more. Uh, I haven't got the exact numbers. but So that's a consideration but does it mean we don't go to invest in Victoria at all? Absolutely not. Uh, I think it's really understanding Vic and for anyone else listening that uh, is in this situation what is our overall strategy is it capital growth how much cash flow do we need is it is it a cash flow strategy not a capital growth one um, what what uh, what sort of money have we got to spend because that's the other thing like for for Vic if he's got 400 grand to spend um, then we're, we're not going anywhere near the larger regionals or or Melbourne um, we for for houses anyway. Um, And then that leads on to the type of asset. So do we want a house? Do we want a townhouse? Do we want a unit? Um, Do we want land? How much land size do we want? Do we want to subdivide? Do we want to add value, put a granny flat on? Like, There's a whole range of things that need to be answered. And then we say, okay, this is my strategy. This is my type of property. This is my price point. This is the yield I need. Now, where can I go and find this in the 12,000 locations around Australia, we shortlist to say, well, there might be 20 that fit that criteria. Now let's analyse those 20. And if five of them are in Victoria and five of them are in New South Wales and five in Queensland and five in WA, the Victorian ones might miss out purely because we can't split it, but we're splitting it now because of the stamp duties or the land tax or
1: something else that's relevant. Maybe, Vic, you need to listen to podcast 646 (laughs) <laughs> Seven steps to create an investment strategy. I know a couple of great guys who did that episode the other day. We could have just said that, but that wouldn't be interesting, would it? No, no. Um,
2: so yeah, it's a common one though, isn't it? Like we go to location first, we go to realestate.com first or domain and I'm guilty of it myself um, when we actually should be doing that last. Um, so he's wanting to turn his PPOR into an investment property. Um, that's another episode on itself, but the yield is 3 to 4%. That's going to have some holding costs, isn't it? When the interest rates are a little bit higher these days, so that's the first question: is uh, can we hold that, and do we actually need to sell the property? Might be CGT free because we've been living in it, etc. Here's
1: a question for you, Johnny Boy: mm. When we are looking at yield on the investment property, yeah, the number we want to go with is the gross yield, like property value six hundred fifty grand rent. I'll make a number up, $1,000 a week. So, put that in your calculator. So,
2: so, so we go a 1,000 times, times 52, 52 2, yep. divided, divided by, by 650,000, which is the purchase price, Yep, gives us a gross
1: yield of 8%. We times yep. it by 100 to get a percentage, 8%. Yeah. Yep. So, I think when we are looking at investment properties, don't net off your interest repayments and water bills and all that when you're working out yield. The yield is the property standing up by itself and what rent come in if you've got a mortgage on it well that's going to obviously mess with your yield but just in terms of uh, looking at the asset um, it's a good way to just see how it's yielding is and, that and a then fair find statement? out
2: yeah yeah what's realistic so if mm. you if you're sitting at home without the internet
1: mm. and
2: you say, well I, I want this sort of yield we then jump on and say well is that actually possible? In the markets that I might want to look in, so yeah, what, what I want and what I can get uh,
1: can be completely different. I got a um, an email from a property today. Let's do a let's do a live Glenn's one of Glenn's properties yield check, shall we? <laughs> Here's another clarity call. Yeah, I'm <laughs> um, just bringing up see how much the rent is per week. What do you reckon that one up near you is worth, that townhouse? Seven fifty? Uh, no, more seven? than that, I reckon. Now, yeah. okay. Run a report. <laughs> okay, I'm going to work out the rent. So it's I'm charging five twenty a week. So if we go five twenty times fifty two. It's twenty seven grand. Oh four oh. Six eighties RP data. Uh,
2: yeah, but it's taking it as a. A unit, is it? Would you say it's a townhouse? Townhouse, yeah. Yeah, so it's a bit higher than that. Yeah, so 750.
1: So we reckon 750. So the annual rent that I'm receiving is 27040 divided by 750 equals, yeah, 3.6%. It's rubbish.
2: So if you're buying that off the shelf today, that's the gross yield you're
1: getting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like you just would never, you would never rebuy that as an investment property.
2: Well, it depends. Like, if you're cash heavy and you've got a large deposit and you want to get into property in the in and that type of asset, then mm. there's no reason why not. But if you've got your standard ten percent uh, plus stamps and you need a, a gross at of five percent because you're on a lower income, then absolutely no way.
1: And I think the reason everyone's probably thinking, why does Glenn have that crappy property? I don't owe much on it.
2: Yeah, and and when and you just, bought you- it because yeah. it hadn't experienced the growth yet the yield was higher so mm. generally what happens in real estate in most cycles is the yield or the rents will follow the growth yeah so, so when
1: i purchased it it was over 5% yield there you go yeah but and this is and this is very important i'm glad we kind of touched on this because there's a lot of equity in this property right so for me it, it wipes its face yeah it's positively geared because it earns more than what I'm paying for it. Yeah. So why wouldn't I just keep it? Tenants That's are happy, right. it's pretty new, no issues. Um, the interest in the P&I, the mortgage is principal and interest. And But yeah, I'd, I wouldn't turn around today and buy a property in that same location. No. Because that um, doesn't stack up.
2: Without, without running a full clarity call on you right now, um, you, you continue to pay it down it will become cash flow positive to the point that you'll actually be paying tax on that income. So that's when you say, right, draw some equity out and go and buy another one of these beautiful assets. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I'm done. <laughs> Bloody, yeah, I'm done. Um, but yeah, go back 25 years and pe- some people have been loyal fans uh, would have heard me say this a lot. I, My goal was to have a, a an a average across my portfolio of 6% gross. Because yield and that that meant that my portfolio was basically wiping its own face.
1: Yeah. And, you know, one of the properties I've got, it doesn't, but the other ones do. And that's the whole thing like with, because I know with equities, like you look at the portfolio in its entirety because there are some seasons where like, if we go back to that question, there are some seasons where that bond ETF, is going to do nothing. Yeah. Okay. But you still have it because it's part of the portfolio. Yes. So, it's different assets within a portfolio. Um, so yeah, there you have it. Do you want to read Madison's question now?
2: Uh, Madison. Madison says, hello, I understand that you need to pay hex based on your income, but do you need to pay hex on rental income?
1: Yes, income is income. And Madison and everyone else who has hex and help debt and who has not, I repeat, who has not seen our PDF downloadable document or listened to the deep dive episode on hex or help debt, go to our Instagram, click send it. MyMillennialMoney a message and just write the words help and I'll send you all that you need to know about Hex and Help Debt and click follow while you're there.
2: And I'm sure Madison knows this, but if she's receiving 80 grand of her own income from her work and 20 grand of rental income, her total taxable income for the year is 100,000 and she gets taxed accordingly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Assuming no offsets. Radio. on that note, we will end it there. Thanks so much for listening. If you've got value out of the episode today, feel free to send it to a friend. We'd love to get the word out about uh, financial literacy. If you want help debt information, just send us a message saying help in the Instagram inbox. Click follow and we'll see you next week. Thanks, John. Bye.
3: This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of MoneySherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451-289.